Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Brethren, if you would, uh, turn with me to uh, chapter 33, verse 1, and uh, we'll see why this particular portion is named the way it is. Uh, verse 1 reads, These are the journeys, or stages, depending on what scripture you have there, of the sons of Israel, by which they came out from the land of Egypt, by their armies, under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting places. And they journeyed from. Uh, this Torah portion in the Hebrew is called Masi. And it comes from the word journeys or stages. Now, if you do a little deeper uh, study into the actual word, the word Masi actually means uh, breaking camp. And uh, I don't know how many of you really uh, do that much camping, but one of the things that is common to the experience of people who go out and camp is that getting there is not too hard. Uh, actually, camping is not too difficult. The part that's difficult, the part that people kind of, you know, they're not really all that happy about, is what we call breaking camp. When you when you got to take all that stuff and you got to put it back in there and and uh, you're not going to use it again for a while and you got to you got to pack it up again uh it is uh, that that's the one experience in camping that I've discovered that I don't particularly enjoy it's n nowhere near the fun of going to go camping or actual camping is and I think that the reason why that the scripture puts this here is because it's trying to, uh, and, and emphasizes the breaking camp part is because the wilderness experience for the children of Israel was not what we would really call a lot of fun. Um, it was fun initially, you know, the idea of going and camping, but camping gets old after a while, and I think this particular 40-year camping experience got old pretty quick uh, for the children of Israel. Uh, when it talks about them murmuring and complaining in the wilderness, I, I think there's some mitigating evidence uh, to to go along with that, I think the Lord understood that. Uh, but you know, when you're trying to, when when it's your life that is, is at stake, and it's the difference between life and death, I don't think the mitigating stuff really should bear that much more weight. Um, and I think that uh, we need, they needed to be reminded that you know they were alive and they weren't slaves anymore uh, inside of an iron furnace, that they were free men, and free men get to go camping, slaves don't. Um, there's another aspect to this I've always identified with, and that is that when um, it's been my experience, at least, that in Messianic congregations, uh, you know, they usually don't have buildings. They're usually a small group of people uh, within a community uh, that they don't, you know, I've, I haven't met very many Messianic Jews that are rich. In fact, uh, now that I think about it, I don't think I've ever met any. Uh, so, you know, buildings aren't popping up, and we don't have the greatest facilities. And one of the common experiences <clears throat> for Messianic Jewish congregations is we get to break camp regularly. Uh, we schlep chairs around and uh, and uh, have to set up a lot, and then we have to take it down because sometimes we share facilities with other people or we're, we're using public facilities. In any case, the... Um, uh, I, I think we can identify a little bit with um, these words here about breaking camp 
and some of the experiences that are in uh, that are given for us in the book of numbers the um this is one passage um that is uh treated uniquely uh in the tradition of the teaching of the torah uh there are certain passages in the torah that it's there's a kind of an understanding at least this is the traditional teaching that says that when you read them, you're to read them through completely, that you're not to uh, read a few verses, talk about it, read a few verses, talk about it. One of those passages back in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 20, when God speaks from the mountain and speaks the Ten Commandments for the first time, the, the traditional teaching says one should read that through completely, uh, let God have his full say uh, with regard to it, and uh, do not do not interrupt the Lord from the mountain. Basically, is what it's what it's saying. Another passage that is uh, like unto that tradition, where we have a straight reading without interruption, is this one here in Numbers chapter 33. When we begin to describe the list that Moses has recorded of the journeys of the children of Israel, when you begin with that start from Ramses, you're not to conclude or interrupt the reading until you read the last point of where they get ready to cross over. So in honor of that uh, tradition, and so that we might get the full effect of what Moses has written to us, follow along with me now as I begin from verse 3 of chapter 33, and we read through the journeys of the children of Israel. And they journeyed from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month, on the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all of the Egyptians. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. Then the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses and camped in Sukkot, and they journeyed from Sukkot and they camped in Ethan which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they journeyed from Ethan and turned back to Pi-ha-haroth, which faces Baal-zephon, and they camped before Migdal. And they journeyed before, from before Ha-haroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Merah. And they journeyed from Merah, and they came to Elim. And in Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. And they journeyed from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. And they journeyed from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. And they journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dokoth. And they journeyed from Dovka and camped at Alush. And they journeyed from Alush and camped at Rephidim. Now it was there that the people had no water to drink. And they journeyed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they journeyed from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth ha Ta'ahba. And they journeyed from Kibroth ha Ta'ahba and camped in Hazarot. And they journeyed from Hazarot, and camped at Rithma. And they journeyed from Rithma, and camped at Rimon Perez. 
And they journeyed from Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. And they journeyed from Libna and camped at Risa. And they journeyed from Risa and camped at Kahilatha. And they journeyed from Kahilatha and camped at Mount Sefer. And they journeyed from Mount Sefer and camped at Haradah. And they journeyed from Haradah and camped, camped at Machhelot. And they journeyed from Machhelot and camped at Tahat. And they journeyed from Tahat and camped at Terah. And they journeyed from Terah and camped at Mitka. And they journeyed from Mitka and camped at Hashamoa. And they journeyed from Hashamoa and camped at Mazarot. And they journeyed from Mazarot and camped at Bene Yahakan. And they journeyed from Bene Yahakan and camped at Hor Ha Gida Giga. And they journeyed from Hor Ha Giga and camped at Yot Batha. And they journeyed from Yot Batha and camped at Avrona. And they journeyed from Avrona and camped at Etzion Gever. And they journeyed from Etzion Gever and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. And they journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor, at the edge of the land of Edom. Then Aaron, the priest, went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the fortieth year after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day in the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the sons of Israel. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmoa. And they journeyed from Zalmoa, Mona, and camped at Punan. And they journeyed from Punan and camped at Obot. And they journeyed from Obot and camped at Ayabarim, at the border of Moab. And they journeyed from Ayim and camped at Devon Gad. And they journeyed from Devon God and camped at Alman Dabla Daim. And they journeyed from Alman Dabla Daim and camped in the mountains of Avarim before Nebo. And they journeyed from the mountains of Avarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the, by the Jordan opposite Jericho. And they camped by the Jordan from Beth Yeshemoth as far as Avel Shittim in the plains of Moab. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images, and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you possess. And you shall inherit the land by lot, according to your families. To the larger you shall give more inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give less. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, 
that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land which you live. And it shall come to pass about that I, as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. The, uh, the journeys of the children of Israel, I don't know if you were counting or not, 40 times. 40 times they broke camp, and they went to these various places. Now, I've done some study as to the meaning of the names, and all of the meaning of the names um, are, well, they, they're consistent uh, in the wilderness with places of assembly, uh, places of rest, places where there was distinctive features in the land where they were at, names that had obviously been given either by the local people that they had learned from or names that they assigned uh, to it. One of the interesting names that's given is one of the very first, uh, and they journeyed from Ramesses. And, of course, uh, Ramesses was the pharaoh. A city was named after him that they left when they left the pharaoh of Egypt. Ramesses um, is an interesting name. It has a little meaning to it. Ra, uh, the first part of that name, was the name of an Egyptian god, the god of the sun. And Ramesses means that Ra treads down. Um, and the name of their god, uh, it sounds like a very fearsome god. Well, Ramesses, the god who treads down, got trampled and uh, uh, stampeded by the god of Israel. And uh, so, so we have an almost opposite contrast that, that the children of Israel should be walking out of the place that should sound very ominous to them when, in fact, God has proven that uh, raw does not tread down. Raw gets treaded down from it. From there, they travel to Sukkot. And this is reminiscent of the days of when um, uh, Jacob, uh, Israel, returned back to the land that it said that as soon as he crossed over, that he went to Sukkot. Now, the word Sukkot is the Hebrew for the name for a feast that we have in the fall, which is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Actually, the word Sukkot means huts or booths. And the children of Israel made temporary shelters there. They made a, they, they called it Sukkot because they got the materials to make a hut. Uh, to make a booth. And our modern-day observance uh, since these days of um, the Feast of uh, Sukkot is to be reminiscent. One of the aspects of the feast is to be reminiscent of the children of Israel when they went in the wilderness. They went to Sukkot as one of their first journeys, and we set up a Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, each year to remind ourselves that our ancestors traveled in the wilderness in this manner. Uh, seven days that we commemorate is the seven days that commemorates the journey of the children of Israel from Ramesses until they crossed the Red Sea. And if you remember, those were the days when they didn't have time for their bread to rise, so they ate unleavened bread, and that's where we get the Feast of Unleavened Bread from. So we have at the start of the, of the holiday cycle uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover story, and at the end is Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering about the wilderness experience. Now, 
for I think for the Hebrew people, uh, they of course have been taught that the wilderness experience uh, is of major uh, significance and importance uh, to understanding the history of Israel. Uh, the nation was born of uh, a uh, uh, in a very unique way. We were a nation of slaves essentially and that slaves were brought forth and made free men all in a single day, not against just some minor uh, power here, against the top uh, civilization, the, the, the most developed nation with the fiercest weapons and fiercest armies. This is the nation that we were brought forth from being slaves and made free men from. A uh, very high contrast to show forth uh, who God is, the God of Israel, the God of the whole earth, uh, has done this great thing. Now, he knew we were going to be in the wilderness. He had promised, though, that we were leaving Egypt so that we might go to a land flowing with milk and honey. And it seems inconsistent that we would go and do all these journeys, all these stages in the wilderness, if that's really the objective. But as we will learn later on, there was purpose to the, the journeys in the wilderness. One purpose was that the children of Israel were to be tested to see what was in their heart. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy that will follow, uh, Moses very emphatically and very specifically says that the Lord led you in this wilderness and he fed you with bread you did not know, which your fathers didn't know, and he gave you drink and so forth, to see what was in your heart. And so there was purpose in testing for it. I would submit also that there's another purpose for it. There is a prophetic picture which is being given here, which we'll speak to a little bit later on. The other names of uh, the places where they journeyed, uh, after they left Sukkot, they went and they camped before Migdal, and that's where they crossed the Red Sea. They um, over into the, um, the land of where the Midianites had been. Moses went and lived with the Midianites uh, when he wasn't in Egypt, so they're crossing back over to the land of Midian. Now, the Midianites lived in the region of the part of the Sinai Peninsula. They lived in the region uh, that, that was between the Sinai Peninsula and over into the area of Arabia. Uh, but they dominated the area of Arabia. I believe, uh, just as it says in Galatians, uh, I think 4.25, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, which is the same name, is not in the Sinai Peninsula, but is rather in the land of Arabia. And that the at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, there is a crossing point called the Straits of Turin, which cross over very briefly into Arabia. And I believe that was the crossing point of when it said they crossed the Red Sea. What is now marked on the map as the Gulf of Aqaba in those days was called the Red Sea. And it's a very great Red Sea, and it's about a mile across there. But there is an underwater natural bridge, which has been discovered, uh, which is about 22 feet down into the water, and it's flat rock. And it's about a mile wide, and uh, this, this area there would have permitted the children of Israel, with God's nostrils blowing the water into a wall, to walk on plain ground, on flat, dry ground, right across over into Arabia, where I believe that Mount Horeb is located. So they crossed over into the Red Sea, and there's a couple of places that they go to, but when it says that they finally came <clears throat> to, um, and they camped by the Red Sea there, verse 11, 
And they journeyed from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin, which is a shortened version for, uh, uh, well, it's actually, um, um, it's just called that. Let me move down just a little bit further. And they came down to verse 15 that they camped in the wilderness of Sinai. So it's away from the Red Sea. It's inland a little bit. And it's at the wilderness of Sinai that they deal with the mountain of Sinai. They deal with the mountain called Horeb. And it's here where, uh, at the base of the mountain, that they set up the uh, golden calf. It's here where Moses received the tablets and the covenant of God was given. The, uh, from there, they travel to Kibroth HaTa'ava. Now, the, I don't, if you remember from the previous portions uh, in the book of Numbers, there was a very interesting event that happened here. This is where the meat, they cried out for meat. And it's called the Graves of the Lust is the location there. That's what that Kibroth HaAtava means, the Graves of the Lust. Or the, uh, uh, and it came about as a result of that the people uh, complained uh, to the Lord. And they called out and they said, well, give us meat to eat. And uh, the irony of that is is that uh, there was meat uh, standing at their feet. They had their flocks. They could have gone to the Red Sea. They could have done fishing. But they didn't want to do that. It was a little bit of a case that they already had meat, but they lusted for more. And it's like, uh, you know, the way I think certain heathen act. You know, what's mine is mine, what's yours we'll negotiate for. And so they treated and acted this way before the Lord. And there was a great plague that began to take place there. There was a great judgment, and there were many people who died uh, and were buried at that location. And from there, they travel on up uh, until until they reach to the place called uh, Rithma. Uh, they're in um, between verse 18, uh, well, at verse 18. They journeyed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. There's the other... Uh, event, uh, which is the in the wilderness of Paran, is said that they made the decision not to go up and take the land. Uh, that at Kadesh Barnea, this is the they were in a transit state that were ready to go into the land. But if you recall, they sent the spies in to the land of, uh, of Israel, up to the hills of the Amorites, up into Hebron, and so forth. And there they became fearful. And uh, they uh, did not go up to the land. And that's when God pronounced the judgment upon them that they would die in the wilderness. And so uh, they continued to go on to Rithma. Rithma was the first place that they camped at. Now under the judgment uh, that that generation would die in the wilderness. Uh, and from where uh, the witnesses had given the bad report. The other names that are given for us uh, that continue on, some are very well-known locations and some are not well-known locations. But the, the bottom line is, is that they kind of wandered all around the wilderness. They did not go into places that were normally inhabited. They did not go to places that had water or the basic services that would be needed for a great number of people. In this case, some 650,000 soldiers. And you can almost estimate that for every soldier that he had at least three to four persons with him. This would include his, his wife and his children. And uh, uh, so, it, as it turns out, we believe that uh, there was approximately some three million people 
that were traveling in this wilderness, a very great number uh, to be trooping around and camping together. Um, it all brings us to the point of where, like it says there in verse 47, that they journeyed from that location and camped to the mountains of Avirim before Nebo. Now, uh, Avirim is, uh, is a, is, has an interesting meaning to it. It means the crossing over, or it means the passing over. And this whole area where they're in, which is the Jordan Valley, um, uh, is the place where uh, you, you can cross over into the land of Israel, where you can then go up uh, toward the mountains of Israel. Uh, to the south is the Dead Sea. You can't cross over there. Up to the north is, this, is the uh, is, um, Galilee region, and the Sea of Galilee, you can't cross over there. But that strip of the river, of the Jordan River, that extends between the two, you can cross over at several points. And so it was referred to as that whole area of Avarim. Now, that's a lush valley down in there, and this is the area where um, uh, the tribe of Gad and the uh, tribe of uh, Reuben and half of the tribe of Manasseh decides that they want to stay there because they had gotten into the cattle business. And this was the land that uh, the inhabitants had used uh, to take care of their cattle. So they uh, asked uh, Moses for permission to basically stay there uh, in that region. And uh, they negotiated that they would send their soldiers on over uh, to help the rest of the children of Israel to take the land. And now we come to the point where we're getting our first introduction after the journeys in the wilderness. We're getting our first introduction about coming to the land. This is the land, the scripture says. Before we uh, touch on that, I, I want to speak very briefly to a prophetic aspect of these journeys in the wilderness. It is clear that it was God's plan that the children of Israel, before going to the Red Sea, would have to be in the wilderness, uh, before crossing over the River Jordan into the land of Israel, the promised land. And there is a picture which is given here, which is a generalized picture of our new covenant faith, in that we are looking forward to a promised land. We're looking forward to a messianic kingdom when the Lord will be the government where righteousness will dwell there. Instead of land flowing with milk and honey, it's righteousness that is there in great abundance. And uh, we, are, we are, are, uh, have been saved from sin, just as the children of Israel had been brought out of the house of slavery, so we've been brought out of the house of slavery of sin. And all of our journeys now, our life, the stages to our life, are all simply... Uh, part of the process to get us to that point when we will cross over. Uh, and so some of the difficulty that we have in our present life is a little bit like a wilderness experience. And we are taught the further teaching of the Feast of Tabernacles, which you remember is uh, the booths are set up to remind us of the wilderness experience. One of the great teachings of the Feast of Tabernacles is that we in our present state are like this booth that when a tent is uh, first set up, its, it's, its cords are taunt and strong, its stakes are driven in with, uh, with diligence, and that the tent is erected and looks sharp and is standing erect. But as time goes on, uh, gravity begins to take the effect on the tent, just as gravity takes effect on us, 
and we begin to droop, and the rope goes slack, and the stakes have become loosened, and the tent, rather than now looking straight and erect, begins to get a little bit of a droopy look to it. And that's like our bodies, these temporary huts that we are in, this temporary nature that we live in in the flesh is likened to the wilderness experience. Uh, you know, we are being cared for by the Lord. They were being cared for by the Lord. They, we went, we go through different stages of our life. They went through stages uh, in the wilderness experience. And we all look forward to the day when we will cross over. Um, and we have similar fears as they had fears and, and, and the whole assortment of things that you can imagine out of that. So, Part of what's given for us in this wilderness experience, um, and which is really the purpose of the whole book, is that to learn from the lessons of the experiences of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And as I started the teaching of the book of Numbers, we conclude with it also here in this last portion, that uh, Paul has given us instruction that we are to uh, learn the lessons uh, from the children of Israel in the wilderness. They are for our instruction and our admonition. And that these same lessons, these same tests, these same experiences would come upon those at the end of the ages. Now, in the generalized sense, we can speak of all New Covenant believers uh, in that. But more specifically, there's a very direct reference to the end of the ages, uh, to the last generation that will be there on the earth. And I believe that that includes us. So what is this great thing that we are to learn um, from the experience of uh, the wilderness and these stages? Now, that's setting aside the judgments and so forth. We're supposed to learn to obey the Lord and believe in the Lord. But what, what about this stages business, which is the meaning of this portion? I believe that uh, just before the coming of the Lord, that the great tribulation is really a series of stages some people get the idea that maybe we're not going to be there. No, we'll be there. Some people get the idea, well, you know, it's it's uh, we'll go to one location and that will be it. No, I don't believe so. I believe that we'll be moving and traveling many times. I believe there will be a series of stages uh, that will be involved in that experience. I base that upon in Matthew 10, where Yeshua specifically makes reference to this time at the end when there will be tribulation. And he says... Now, when they oppress you in one city, flee to the next. I tell you, you shall not flee to all the cities in Israel before the Son of Man returns. And what he describes there is a series of, it's almost like a mobile defense, a series of moves. Uh, and, and if you go back and you review, well, how many cities were there in Israel? Uh, according to the Torah, which were given, there are 48 cities that were in the land of Israel. Uh, six uh, cities of uh, refuge, and that there were 42 other cities. So a total of 48. Now, he says, according to his prophecy in Matthew 10, will not move more than 48 times. That's the absolute maximum number. Well, how many times did the children of Israel move in the wilderness? Forty. Forty times. They did not travel or move more times than the number of cities in Israel. And it wouldn't surprise me I don't know that it's going to be exactly 40, but it wouldn't surprise me if in the course of fleeing in the Great Tribulation that we were forced to move a great number of times, maybe on the order of at least once a month. 
Now, we know that the Great Tribulation is to be a period of some three and a half years. Uh, that's uh, 36 to 37 months. Uh, so, you know, if you can see that the number 40 is being approached very quickly if we just go once a month. I think that uh, later on, when we're in those days, some of this will make more sense to us. Uh, right now, it's just a repetitious list of they were here, and then they moved there, and they were here, and they moved there. And it doesn't seem to have much value to us. But I think that um, there are patterns in this that begin to take on a very interesting shape. One of the patterns is that there's seven places from the time that Aaron dies until they get ready to cross over the River Jordan. That we know that there were seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that occurred at the front end of this. And any time I see those kinds of indicators, I know that there's something more there. God didn't put this in there to bore us. Uh, he didn't put it in there so that that uh, young people would have to sit and listen to some guy read, you know, 50-some verses uh, that just go on and on and on. And I think there's a meaning in there. I believe that it will come forth to us later on. So when the days come that you're in the Great Tribulation, you might want to come back and check this Torah portion. It may have something to say to you at that time. It brings us to the point about two great things that are said here at the end of chapter 33 and at the beginning of chapter 34. Let me read for you chapter 34 uh, there for a few verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance. Now I want you to know that there's a little dynamic that's, that has just taken place. Up to this point, when we talk about the promised land, when we talk about this land that we're going to go into, the children of Israel and Moses refer to it as a land flowing with milk and honey. And it sounds so good. I mean, there must be, there must be cows every, on every hill. There must be bees in every tree. Uh, that to have a land flowing with milk and honey, they just must be so much milk and so much honey. It's just flowing everywhere that you almost have to walk on it. Well, it's not quite like that. In fact, if you go and to the point where they're getting ready to cross over to the River Jordan and they see the land that is before them, when, when Moses says, this is the land, I have been there. You're not going to see any cows there. You're not going to see any bees. You might see some gigantic mosquitoes and some other things like that, but you're not going to see this glorious thing. I compare this thing to, a lot of times, uh, sales brochures uh, for tours to Israel. Uh, I've seen sales brochures that says, let's go up to the city of Jerusalem, the city of gold, you know, like... This is heaven, and the streets are paved with gold. I've been to Jerusalem. There's no gold streets. The real Jerusalem. There's no gold streets. It's, it's the, the, the marbleized-looking uh, stone that is there is very fascinating, and it does have a little hue and tint to it, uh, especially when the sun's setting or early in the morning, and it's kind of a goldish-looking color. But it's not, I wouldn't call it the city of gold. It's not gold. And the same thing is, is being expressed here with regard to the land. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a part of the maturing process, spiritual maturing process, for every believer. The fact is, is that uh, Yeshua has said that if you'll become a believer in him, uh, that I will give you life and I will give it to you more abundantly. I can remember 
being uh, told uh, and hearing men sharing the gospel with other men. Oh, don't you understand? You know, listen, when you get to know the Lord, I mean, it's so good. It's so great. And they infer, like, all your problems are going to go away. Uh, you know, you can eat anything you want. Uh, you can you can get away with anything. The grace of God is so great and so mighty uh, that it's just going to be wonderful. It's just going to be great. It's what you've been looking for all your life. Well, I'm not taking anything away from uh, the graciousness of the Lord, and I'm certainly not taking anything away from his great gift of eternal life. But a lot of people are kind of shocked. <laughs> after they've accepted the Lord, to discover, wait a minute, it's not quite like uh, quite like I was told or what I thought. And the same thing is being expressed here when Moses says, well, yeah, I know you heard about the land flowing with milk and honey, but this is the land. This is the land. And yes, it's been promised. Yes, it's your inheritance. Yes, you're going to go in. But it's not going to be quite like what maybe your imagination ran off with and told you it would be. It's a land that has enemies in it that have to be driven out. But it's a good land. And yes, it is a land flowing with milk and honey when you have cattle and when you have bees and other things like that, but it's also a, a good land for other things as well. A land to live and till and grow. And a very important principle about the land is given forth to the children of Israel. Verse 55 of chapter 33 says, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eye and as thorns in your side, and they shall trouble you in the land in which you live. And it shall come about that as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. Well, there are some, there are a few voices, and I mean there are very few, in the land of Israel today who have made reference to this passage of Scripture in late. And they have said, you know, it's just like what Moses said. Because we share the land of Israel with other inhabitants who do not know the God of Israel, they have become pricks to our eyes and thorns in our sides, and we have this constant trouble, you know, with these inhabitants. And this has been the history of Israel. Now, the Lord is not a mean God who doesn't, who chooses one people over another and says, well, no, though those other guys can't live. What the Lord is trying to do is run, is fulfill his promises that he made to their fathers, and he's trying to render a blessing to, uh, trying to render a blessing to um, uh, the uh, children of Israel. And the only way to render that blessing is that the enemy has to be removed from their presence. In the case of the land of Israel right now, it is apparent that God's great blessing has come upon the land of Israel within my generation of great prosperity. Uh, you know, you can see at certain times of the year they can take satellite photos of the land of Israel, and you can mark out the borders of the land of Israel because it's the part that's green and everything else is brown. It's because there's a great blessing that's going on there. Uh, the land is flourishing. The trees are growing. Uh, the produce is incredible. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, Europe enjoys a tremendous uh, import of flowers that come from the land of Israel. That all of the region of the Middle East there enjoys a tremendous import of fruit 
which comes from the land of Israel, which is grown there. The land of Israel is, in fact, very prosperous. But at the same time, the land of Israel is very prosperous in that regard. The land of Israel is also in great trauma and great conflict uh, because of other inhabitants in the land. Now, recently there was a rabbi uh, not too long ago that read from this verse and said, could this be the reason we're having trouble in the land of Israel? And literally every secular type and every liberal type uh, almost almost took him out and stoned him. You know, how dare uh, such a statement be made uh, with regard to this people? And they see that as very antagonistic to the Palestinians. I don't think it's antagonistic to the Palestinians. I don't think the Palestinians are ever going to have peace in their life until they figure out that they've got to go somewhere else. Is The land of Israel is not theirs. Now, they can say it is, they can believe it is, they can try to occupy it and so forth, but they're in great conflict with this God of the Bible who has said, no, that's not the place for them. In fact, that place has been promised to the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his descendants. Now, aliens and sojourners are welcome in the land of Israel if they're willing to honor the God of Israel and they're willing to live in the land where there's one law. The Torah teaches that very clearly. But these inhabitants do not want to live, and nor do they want to obey the God of Israel. And so there's going to be conflict, and this is what is being prophetically spoken of by Moses too, says because you've got to take those inhabitants out or otherwise you're going to have trouble. Not only will you have trouble, but uh, I think for um, uh, people who enter into the land, Moses is trying to give a, a uh, what I would call kind of a reality check here. Uh, let's get real. The land of Israel is, is, yes, it's a land with flowing with milk and honey, but that's not the whole thing. It's also a land of deserts. It's a land of farms. It's a land of mountains. It's a land with trees. It's a land that is barren. It's a land that is a wilderness. It is a land that is a sea coast. This land has many, many parts to it. And it's good and wonderful. And all of these parts belong to the um, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there were other people who knew the land was a good land, and they were inhabiting it as well, the Canaanites and uh, so forth. So uh, they are instructed as they get ready to cross over to come to terms of the reality. The land is inhabited by people that are going to have to be driven out, and this is the land. This is the apportion. This is your inheritance. This is what the Lord has prepared for you, which your fathers um, have, have known and enjoyed. Uh, the next chapter moves over into, and it begins to speak of the 48 cities that I mentioned to you before. Chapter 35 speaks of the six cities, uh, six of them, cities of refuge, and there'd be a total of 48 cities. In verse 7 of chapter 35 says, All the cities which you give, shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities together with their pasture lands. And goes on and says the Levites were given an opportunity to live in the land, uh, into the cities themselves, and they had a simple, they weren't given inheritance, but they got to live in these cities that were made uh, made for it. Now, some of these cities uh, were previous cities that had been made by the inhabitants of the land. Some of the cities were created and they were built, uh, you know, up. And so the rules are given here as to how to apportion um, the inheritance. Now, I want you to note uh, God does a very interesting thing in about how to determine that. 
rather than having the leaders come in like Gad and Reuben, who came in first and says, hey, you know, we take it a look at the land and look, we have cattle and this is a land for cattle. Why don't we take that? That was the that was the way it was initially done before they crossed over the River Jordan. But when they crossed over the River Jordan, then a different kind of apportioning took place. They cast lots. Now, it was some kind of a dice thing, you know, like a pure chance thing. And somehow God is saying that in his divine order that this is the appropriate way to do that. The... Um, which raises a very interesting question in the minds of uh, us as to what in the world is the Lord doing? Does the Lord maybe sometimes cast lots to determine who shall do this and who shall do that and the appointment of people? Which raises a very interesting question. Now, this business of casting lots is, uh, is, is more than just in this division of the land and in the inheritance of the land. We have a feast in Israel called the Feast of Lots. It's called Purim. It comes before Passover, about a month before Passover. Late winter, early, very early spring. Purim comes from the story of Esther and, uh, uh, and, and the things that happened there, how there was casting of lots. In the temple service, when the priests would come in, who, which priests got to work the altar? Which priests got to go in and trim the lamps? Which priests went in and put the incense on? Which priests did the cleanup? Which priests took the, to the ashes, uh, cleaned the ashes of the altar, took it out to the clean place? Who, who, who decided that? The high priest decided that? No. Each day, uh, the priests would gather in before the morning sacrifice, and they would cast lots. And they would let the lots be the determination by God as to what task each person would do. That way, some guy got good at serving the altar. Well, then they said, well, he's good at serving the altar. Let's let him do the altar for us within the division of the priesthood. No. Every day you came in, if you were a priest, and there's a good possibility, you could be doing any job. There was no prearrangement made. It was the casting of lots. And in this case, there's no prearrangement as to who will be in what land, the product of the land and who got it by inheritance was, a, was a, as a result of two components, the size of the tribe and the casting of lots. Um, the, uh, I, I don't have a lot of the other verses for you at this point, but this is business of the casting of lots is a very large theme that exists in Scripture. It was used in many more places than people realize. If you recall... When Yeshua was upon the cross, the soldiers down below cast lots for his garments uh, so that they wouldn't tear them apart. There's more to this than people realize, this casting of the lot. In chapter 36, uh, verse 2, and it says, And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land by lot to the sons of Israel as an inheritance. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance, and so forth. He goes on. In other words, it was done by lots. And so when you look at some kind of a map that showed where the tribes of Israel landed and what part were they in, um, that in the area there of the Judean wilderness and the Negev, that was the land of Judah. Uh, if I would have been there, and so forth, I'm not so sure I would have jumped up and down and said, oh, yeah, this is great, I get to go... Uh, 
this uh, land here that's not flat. It's all kinds of wilderness. You can't grow a thing there. You can't uh, shepherd uh, sheep or goats there very good. This is great. We got this chunk of ground, and what can we do with it? Whereas there's other parts of the ground, such as up in the Galilee, uh, or or even toward uh, Caesarea, over toward the coast, which are m much more interesting pieces of ground, in my estimation, uh, as to what it was. But again, it was cast by lots, and it was a consolation to to the person who got a real good piece of ground for growing to say, oh, look what the Lord has given to us. And it was still a consolation uh, to like people of the tribe of Judah who got the ground that's just a Judean wilderness. And they said, well, this is what the Lord apportioned to us. This is what the Lord gave us. There must be a blessing here. This is our inheritance. And um, uh, so it raises a very interesting uh, thing with this. Why is it that... Um, why is it that God uh, calls this particular man to, to go and preach, and he didn't call this other guy? If you look and you compare the two of them, you say, well, this one's a little shorter than the other one, and, and you can't see as much as of him over the podium, or this one has a much more dynamic voice than that one, and if you're going to preach, wouldn't you want a better voice? And, and, and you, get, you, you go through a whole series of things and say, well, what, what is going on in God's mind uh, that he should choose this, choose this man and not that man? And I happen to think that there's a certain, uh, what we would call, degree of randomness, uh, which is as a result of lots, the casting of lots, that, that produces a kind of randomness. However, I would tell you one other interesting thing about the idea of casting lots. If you think that the casting of two sets of dice is some sort of random thing, I have news for you, it is not random at all. That they're, by the design of the dice... There is a great structure. The casinos sitting out in Las Vegas and Reno and Atlantic City are all predicated and based upon the concepts of understanding probabilities. And they simply play to the margin of those probabilities so that it appears to be random and lucky on your part when, in fact, it's a highly structured, disciplined uh, set of probabilities. And that's what brings us to the interesting thing about when God makes reference to the casting of lots. It's not random or per chance or happenstance as you would think. There is a level of uh, probability and a level of sophistication there that is uh, rather interesting uh, that uh, puts it to us. So um, when I look around and I see the way God has called certain men to do certain tasks, one of the things that I say is, well, let's see, it's it's just probabilities that it would have worked out this way. Uh, God has structured the system so that it will do the things that he needs to have it do, and but it appears to us to be random or happenstance or the casting of lots uh, unto us. But in fact, there's true purpose to it. The uh, This last portion here of chapter 35 uh, after it speaks of the land being divided by lots, it then uh, makes a rather interesting uh, rule with regard to this inheritance. Let me read for you the last words of chapter 35, beginning at verse 7. Thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe. For the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers, 
And every daughter who comes into possession of an inheritance of any tribe of the sons of Israel shall be wife to one of the family of the tribe of her family, so that the sons of Israel each may possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another tribe, for the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. Two times, verse 7 and verse 9, God emphasizes and he says, Look, once I give this inheritance, there's going to be no more trading of land. You know, one father can't go to another father of another tribe and say, Look, uh, how about uh, we swap the ground? Uh, I'd really like to have this little piece here and I'll give you this piece in exchange. Uh-uh, none of that. No more negotiations over it is. It stays. It stays within that tribe. Now, that doesn't mean that you couldn't temporarily sell it and allow somebody to come in and to use it. But in the year of Jubilee, the land had to be returned to the heirs of that tribe so that each generation would receive the inheritance. The inheritance wasn't just to that generation that crossed over the River Jordan. The inheritance is to their descendants as well. And so God has instituted rules that says, no, you can't swap it off. You can't trade it away. Uh, you can't not make an agreement that may, makes it go to a different way. Now, let me, um, let me bring up an interesting point that brings us to the modern-day conflict that we live in. If the sons of Israel are prohibited from trading any of the tribal lands that they have amongst themselves, then how much more is it that the Lord is opposed to the sons of Israel trading away any of their land that they've received to inheritance to someone that is not of the sons of Israel, namely the Palestinians? The reason why there's great conflict in Israel between the religious community and the secular community is the secular community doesn't believe these verses. The religious community does. They believe that you cannot trade away the land of Israel. You cannot transfer it to someone. It's uh, at the year of Jubilee, it's got to come back. It's got to all belong to Israel and to their descendants, the descendants of these tribes which presents us with a very interesting dilemma. How strongly do we really believe that uh, we should believe in the Bible? How strongly do we believe that we should obey the command of the Lord? What if you're presented in your lifetime with that God has said you shall not do a certain thing, and yet you're presented with the dilemma in your life that your job requires you to do it, or because of where you live you have to do it, or what... At what point do we believe, and at what point do we say, well, we're going to obey the Lord with regard to this? Now, the great argument of the secularist and the great argument of the modern man is that these things that happen, they're way ancient things. They're ancient things, and they're, they don't apply. But God made this rule so that it might apply to the descendants of those men, not just those men, not just our fathers that crossed over the River Jordan, but made it a rule, made it a commandment, so that the descendants of those men would also receive the same blessing. The fact of the matter is, if we don't obey the Lord, if we won't follow his instruction and guidance, then our descendants, and us in particular, we don't receive the full blessing that God intended and that we are subject to what our fathers have done in the past. 
If our fathers had obeyed the Lord, then we, the descendants of him, the sons of our fathers, we would have received the blessing as well. But we have not. Because the fathers in Israel would not drive the inhabitants out of the land of Israel, generation after generation after generation has had to suffer the prick in the eye and the thorn in the side, even to this day. Thankfully, when the Lord returns and restores all things, there will be a great year of jubilee. And in that year of jubilee, we shall be returned to the land properly and receive the full inheritance of what God has set for us. And we will have another chance uh, to obey the Lord. Brethren, this uh, concludes uh, the book of Numbers uh, about the wilderness experience. And we uh, next uh, Sedra portion will then move into the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. Of course, there's a very ancient tradition that where we, when we complete a book, that we are reminded of that God, it's through the Torah that God strengthens us. And so there's an old traditional saying as we complete the book of the Torah where we say, strength, strength, let us be strengthened. and uh, Or strong, strong, let us be made strong. And it's kind of the encouragement that I would want to offer to you, uh, those who receive these tapes and this instruction of the Torah. Let each book of the Torah strengthen you in your faith, establish you, establish your faith. The New Testament says that's what the Torah is for, to establish our faith, to, to give us a base uh, to build upon, that we'll learn the character of God, that we'll learn his promises, that we can learn to trust and believe in him. And so we are um, uh, encouraged uh, by the completion of the book of Numbers um, to do that again. So I would encourage you, brethren, uh, to be strengthened through the study of the Torah. If you would, uh, let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the book of Numbers. We thank you, Lord, for this portion where we've completed it. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you are a God that strengthens us. And quite honestly, Lord, uh, as we conclude with the thought, it seems like in our life that there's a sense of randomness and happenstance. And, Lord, that we don't understand how it is that sometimes you do things by the casting of lots. But it's part of your principles. It's part of the ways that you lead and guide us. And, Lord, uh, uh, we need to understand that so that we might be at peace with your decisions and understand the things that you want to have done. Lord, that we might understand the inheritance that we have from you and that you're our Father and you have a great and wonderful blessings and inheritance for us. So, Lord, I would uh, ask that you might use these words of the Torah to strengthen not only our faith, but to strengthen our resolve to obey you and to follow you. We pray all this in the name of our coming King and Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma. 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.